Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi har længe haft en ambition om at lave et interview med en, der kunne forklare os Kina på Kinas egen præmisser. Det er klart, vi er kritiske over for det enorme overvågningsapparat, som kineserne har installeret i deres eget samfund. Vi er kritiske over for den kolossale koncentration af politisk og økonomisk magt, som man ikke kan drage til regnskab. Vi er kritiske over behandlingen af uigurerne og Hongkong osv., men det har vi også fået sagt en hel del gange, og det er en position, som jeg ikke behøver at bekymre mig for, ikke vil blive markeret. Det, som jeg derimod godt kan bekymre mig for, det er, har vi interesseret os nok for det kolossale politiske eksperiment, som Kina har gennemgået det sidste halve århundrede. Overgangen fra en lavindkomstøkonomi, hvor folk de led af madrationeringsmærker i spidte små lejligheder, hvor de ikke havde plads til noget som helst, hvor man gik i det samme tøj og cyklede på de samme cykler over meget lange afstander i meget trøstesløse byer. Til den deciderede konkurrent, som Kina er blevet til Vesten i dag, til den spektakulære kombination af kommunisme og kapitalisme, som Kina har udviklet, til den model for markedsøkonomi, som på nogle områder er konkurrencedygtig og på andre områder overhovedet ikke er. Jeg tror, vi har en fælles forståelse af, at vi har ikke været nysgerrige nok på den kolossale konstruktion, det enorme politiske eksperiment. Og det gør også, at det kan indimellem være svært for os at vurdere, hvor langt er Kina egentlig med den grønne omstilling? Er den grønne omstilling for kineserne et investeringseventyr? Er det et væksteventyr? Er det kampen for Europa, det 2100 energikilder, mineraler, sjældne jordmetaller, solpaneler? Er det det, der driver dem? Eller er det en kamp for at blive et land, der ikke udleder CO2? Er det en vækstkamp, eller er det en bæredygtighedskamp? Så der er en masse spørgsmål, som vi længe gerne har ville stille og kunne uddybe og diskutere med nogen, der kunne forklare Kina indefra. Så derfor blev jeg utrolig opmuntret, da jeg tidligere på året stiftede bekendtskab med økonomen K.U. Jin, som har udgivet bogen The New China Playbook Beyond Socialism and Capitalism. Den udkom i foråret 2023. K.U. Jin kan netop det, som vi har efterspurgt. Hun er født og opvokset i Beijing. Hendes far er en anerkendt kinesisk økonom, der hedder Jin Li Kun. Han er tidligere vicefinansminister i den kinesiske regering. Men da Kei Jin var 14, der flyttede hun til USA, hvor hun først boede i New York og siden i Boston. Hun er uddannet i økonomi fra Harvard, hvor hun også skrev Ph.D. Hun er i dag associate professor i økonomi ved London School of Economics. Hun blev den yngste fastansatte professor nogensinde som 29-årig, da hun blev ansat på London School of Economics. Hun har været rådgiver for vestlige institutioner som IMF og the, World, og the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Og hun blev i 2014 af World Economic Forum udråbt til Young Global Leader. Projektet for Kei Jin med den her bog, det er at forklare Kina på kinesisk for resten af verden. Det er at sige, at jeg ved godt, at der er masser af problemer i Kina, men hvis vi lægger dem til side et øjeblik, og så forholder os til, hvad det er for en model, så kan vi analysere den, vi kan diskutere den, vi kan folde det ud, og derfra vil alt kritikken komme på en eller anden baggrund af oplysning om, hvad det er, der sker i Kina, og hvad det er, der er sket over de senere år. Det kunne jo også godt være, siger Kei Jin, at vi rent faktisk kunne lære noget af det land, som vi ellers for det meste kritiserer. Så her følger min langsom samtale med Kei Jin, som bor i London, mens vi taler sammen, er på ferie i Beijing, hvor hun taler fra en stor lejlighed.
Well, thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. It's very generous of you. No, no, no. Thank you for your interest. It's a, it's a wonderful book. And it's a, I think for us here in Denmark, at least, and I think in the West in general, it's a very, very helpful book. And it's very important because China is emerging as a superpower. And there hasn't been a lot of intellectual capacity spent on trying to understand this great, great, great political experiment taking place in our time. Of course, also because there's a lot of alarm about China, the treatment of the Uyghurs, the lack of civil liberties, and the the fear that there's an economic model evolving that's stronger than ours, or that's at least competitive to ours, that does not guarantee the same civil liberties that we take for granted. Why did you write the book originally? Well, the opening sentence is reading China in the original uh you know what is use a different lens uh take a look in in china um from the inside understand uh how this very unique model has evolved and what it means and uh, also understand why the culture and history also matters a great deal to understand better this this giant uh, economy that will inevitably be very important for the world you know no matter what happens so Uh, I, I think it's. Uh, I think there's so much misunderstandings about about China that you know whether it's the good, the bad, or the future, uh, we should take a consider a different perspective. I think there are two ways of approaching the book as a reader from here, from Denmark. One is saying, well, we've been all alarmed by what is critical about China, about what what we can rightly criticize, and we haven't paid any attention to the other part of it. And we should get a fuller picture and a better intellectual analysis, basically. Another way of putting it is that that let China be China. Let's not be morally outraged about it's a different society, it's a different order. How how, how do you see it? What, what which one of these two do you subscribe to? Look, you know, whether there are cultural differences or differences in values, China is a very essential part of the global economy. And we're all kind of, um, we're actually all kind of part of it. Actually, if you look at uh, the global supply chain, apart from, I I looked at this map, interesting, I think Greenland and Antarctica, uh, (laughs) everybody is part of that global supply chain. And China is one central uh, component. Um, But even apart from the the economy, uh, the fact that, Um, you know, it has borrowed elements from or uh, social or political orders we 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 we're familiar with, whether it's socialism, communism, or capitalism. Even though I don't believe that these labels are that helpful in today's day and age, uh, it has fostered something quite unique and has told us what has been particularly effective and powerful in in jumpstarting economic development. But it also cautioned us to some of. Uh, you know, the fallacies of the system, just like there are fallacies in other systems. And if there is any bit of curiosity uh, to, you know, progress in whatever way, where whatever system you are, you're in, I think there's, a, a, you know, there's a point about learning something that's very different. Um, I don't actually think it's a choice uh, saying, okay, let's just, you know, forget about just China's different. We don't understand. We don't, you know, it, it's just, uh, first of all, I think, The new generation are much more connected than than potentially previous generations uh, because they're uh, they're technology driven, but they're also 
um, bound by the same uh, uh, challenges like the environment, uh, like housing, uh, you know, like artificial intelligence and all that. And I, I do think there is a huge, uh, especially for the young generation, a huge uh, possibility of, of um, making this world really a much more I don't know what's the right word. I don't want to sound make it sound corny, but you know, I think that information flow is so really critical. I think where China fails, it would also be the lack of information flow. So, you know, why try to shut it down, right? Did the book come out in China as well? Uh, no, they've asked me to to write one in Chinese, but I, I really haven't had the time. Uh, only because I, I think I need to modify some some chapters because you see for the Chinese, you know, there's things that are really interesting to the Western eye, like the one child policy that are actually very familiar to them. And whereas they're, you know, they're they're more curious about China uh, compared to the US and they want to know more about international um, kind of comparisons that I think would be interesting for this book. So I, I would have had to to you know to alter some of these chapters which i haven't done yet reading the book one of the things that makes it very helpful is that i at least get the sensation i'm not qualified to be the judge of that that you understand china and the west equally well that you have a, a double perspective and i was almost thinking to myself well this must be a unique thing but it can't be a unique thing because so many chinese students went to america and so many business people went to china but it comes across as a as a unique book uh, What's your own? What's the? Can you describe the country that you grew up in and the family that you grew up in in China? I grew up in in Beijing. Um, I, I I have you know very fond memories of China at that time, at a time when there was very little, uh, when Chinese people had very little. But um, I remember the excitement that Chinese people had towards uh, you know bidding for the Olympics or uh, you know. Um, uh, looking at China becoming a part of uh, WTO and actually being quite impressed by um, U.S. technology and the American dream. And then uh, this huge learning capacity and desire to learn from the world was just so vivid uh, that, you know, it was it was humility. Right. And I think that was really important for for China uh, as well. They it looked to the outside and saw things that it really wanted to learn and copy, you know, but that's, uh, that's also just part of the, the, you know, part of that excitement, that tidal wave. And uh, when we were growing up, uh, we were all very happy materialistically. It's nothing like what we have today. You know, people lived in small apartments and I remember riding bicycles uh, an hour and a half uh, every day to school, you know, in, you know, poorly heated uh, classrooms Uh, so really, China has come a long way, especially, you know, after 20, 30 years of reunion with my my classmates, middle classmates, seeing them work in, you know, Chinese banks and Chinese companies and doing these things, even as just totally coming from average families. I think everybody's grateful to economic reform and um, and opening up and, and that they are grateful to the country and the government but for making people have a better life. I mean, at, at the bottom of it, of course, they, they have complaints and quibbles. And I'm not saying that this is permanent, but by and large, they are grateful. Yeah. And then you describe in the book that you come to America as a student. You get this, at the time, I think, unique opportunity to get to, to America as a student. 
And you're surprised that the only thing people ask you about is when they hear that you're from China is Tibet, Tiananmen Square and, and, and human rights. And of course, as a Westerner, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Why did that surprise you? It was it surprised me because I thought, wow, China is so much bigger than that. And maybe we also do see, you know, certain things slightly with a different eye. Um, but how could it be that a large country undergoing such, um, you know, breathtaking transformation be reduced? And I think redu reductionist, that a view is going to be a theme throughout my adult years uh, as I've been in the West looking at China, a reductionist view about China to these three things that, you know, people had a good sense of, but really uh, wasn't really their focal point. Now, I'm not saying that There wasn't the issue of lack of, you know, information flows and dynamic debate. But to be honest, you know, there were lots of things going on um, and, and that nothing, none of that was men being mentioned is more why I was surprised. And I think many in the West now has the impression that, you know, for, for decades, we, we thought that China would become like us from our, you know, limited perspective that with economic growth and you came the middle class. And now we see if you get caught in the middle class trap, but but that it would evolve into a democracy. And then when we realized that China would not become a democracy, exactly like our model, that that it's becoming more and more authoritarian. I think that's the point of view for many here, uh, watching Xi Jinping take the third term in the surveillance apparatus. But you have a point in the book saying that actually uh, the people will take on an increasingly assertive role in in China, and that we should understand that even though this is not a Western-style democracy, that there is accountability and there's responsiveness in the Chinese system. How do you describe that? First of all, I should say that getting to Denmark is what everybody wants, uh, <laughs> but not that all Western democracies are what everybody wants. So uh, it's it's difficult to get to Denmark. Um, but, you know, look, if, if the question is, has economic development push people to want more a freer and open society? I think the, the answer is absolutely yes. And I'm not saying that they don't want democracies, democracy. I think um, certain incarnations of Western style democracies are to many people not necessarily suitable, but I'm also not suggesting um, with you know full uh, intellectual honesty that they don't want uh, you know, a society uh, that is free and open. I think they do. And so we need to keep that in mind. And even though I mentioned in the book that, um, you know, there are elements of, um, you know, uh, 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 elements that governments need to fulfill. And, and this is, you know, fully, I fully subscribe to that, such as accountability and responsibility. These are not necessary things that can only be found or necessarily are found in uh, a democracies of all varieties. Um, but just focusing on accountability and responsibility for, for a moment, and, and that's that's kind of goes hand in hand in hand with people's uh, power. It is the, the very fact that today's China is very, very different from China 40 years ago, and certainly different from China 60 years ago, where there was a lot more uh, national turmoil, the Chinese people have fundamentally changed because of economic development, because what have they what they have seen with uh, the outside world. So even if we see that, you know, the society might 
uh, exhibit more control or more state power, you know, in, in this time, that doesn't mean the whole nation has, you know, deviated from a trend where I think uh, there is more convergence than we are giving credit to. But the sea is really, you know, the people, I like to see the Chinese people as the sea that keeps the Communist Party boat afloat. And that very much, I believe, um, because there is constant two-way feedback system, which actually interests the state and the people in power, um, because they know that the greatest success um, uh, of um, the lasting power of the party, and also, you know, this is the interest of the party is is uh, to build a lasting system. But so far, um, it's to have brought this legitimacy because they made people's lives better. And so they're not forgetting this at any moment. So that's the grand reason um, that, you know, that there is that feedback and that ultimately, if not all, but the majority of people's needs today, I'm not talking about tomorrow because that's changing. That's the point about the book. Um, are up until now largely satisfied. And what is that? It is, I wanna send my kids to a good school and so that they have a brighter future and that my life is getting better. For the mass majority of people who aren't still rich enough to be thinking about all the other things that richer societies uh, can have a luxury of so doing, or even you know richer people can. Um, but in terms of these mechanisms, China have, sorry, competition, accountability, responsibility. Again, the point I mentioned, it doesn't have to necessarily come only from democracies. Well, China has a very sophisticated political economy system, which I you know, lay out um, in detail, in great detail in the book, where there's competition mechanisms among officials uh, that try to, you know, undertake, you know, economic transformations and innovation, and now the environment and um, accountability, because, you know, if uh, if they, they're, you know, the people are not happy with them, uh, all this information will, will um, well, all of this will be, you know, uh, they have very, very good filtering to deliver this uh, information to the central government. Uh, and even if you have, pro you know, 11,000 protests just over land rights use last year, just over one issue, you can imagine many more. Uh, why, do, why does China allow that? Well, because the Chinese government, Chinese central government has an in interest in collecting real information and understanding what the sentiment of the vast majority of people are. So, um, and uh, so, you know, so again, it's not electoral democracy, but but there are sophisticated mechanisms in place. And these local officials have a very unique role is that the leadership controls this, um, the promotion of these local officials up the uh, high rise. So they have the incentives to push for good economic performance and social stability and, and so forth. But, you know, having said all that, which is, which is all kind of, I think, you know, quite, quite unique. And it's, this is not something that can be easily replicated, nor China does China want to replicate this elsewhere. Um, I do have my reservations about, about, you know, where this is all going, right? So for a long period of time, material sufficiency was the pretty much the, the main and maybe only measure um, of, of success. And then came uh, demands for the environment. So we saw the government respond. And then um, 
now you know a new metric of development but also eventually political participation of people and having their preferences being able to reveal in terms of political outcomes are all part of that process and i don't believe any of that kind of political economy system without adaptation evolution can be truly successful but we, we have observed in the last 40 years is that by and large there have been progress maybe a few steps forward, a few steps back, that kind of thing we have uh, commonly observed um, throughout all this period. Uh, so I do think it's a challenge in the future. One of the takeaways for me from reading your book is how much the Chinese system is able to change while it's developing its policies that I think we tend to think of it as a permanent, unchangeable system with a lot of constants where there actually are variables. And one of the things that seem uh, very complicated is the role of the state in, in the Chinese economy, which seems to have changed a lot over the last half century or so. You're critical of the way that we in the West usually perceive of the role of the state in the in the Chinese model. Can, can you explain how you see the role of the state? Yeah. First of all, I see the role of the state as, again, very playing a very different role in different stages of economic development and society's uh, maturation, if you will. When we don't have good capital, when we have immature capital markets and uh, a nascent economy, I think the state can play a very, very important role. Uh, again, in jumpstarting uh, this, you know, this takeoff, right? Uh, with state mobilization, coordination, and allocation of these resources. I mean, just to give you an example, um, it, it doesn't even have to be developing economy. If we want to jumpstart a new industry, entirely new industry, uh, like EVs, right? China rolled out 4 million EV charging stations. Sorry, the state rolled out that many ch charging stations around the country, um, coordinating supply chains from battery makers to manufacturers, helping you know these companies coordinate financing. And in the U.S. right now, there's still 100, only 140,000 EV charging stations, right? So when we talk about these new emerging industries or even the green transition, um, the role of the state can really be critical in really pushing. It's the big push, right? It's the big push that can uh, have a lot of, you know, there's a compelling reason behind it. Um, now, uh, in China, and but again, you know, there are conditions, right, under which that works well. Again, in China, for, for the better part of the last 40 years, even today, look at the financial system. 85% or sorry, only 15% of the financial system is direct like capital markets, you know, uh, bond markets, stock markets. In the U.S., it's, it's the opposite. 85% of the financial system is these capital markets. So there's still elements of China where the economy is not mature, the financial system is not mature, and the state, again, can play a coordinating role. I talk about the mayor economy in the book, you know, that kind of decentralized economic um, model where the mayors are running around, like, you know, encouraging these entrepreneurs, helping them attract talent and then coordinate financing and really pushing them and many, many of them to, to success by getting rid of these or overcoming these kind of barriers to business, I think is very helpful. Uh, and we've seen many success cases. A small known city of 5 million people in China has built the world's Quantum Avenue and one of the top three uh, EV companies in China and uh, in the world. And um, 
so so but but then but then I, I'm I'm not like I, I I'm careful in in talking about the role of the state because it does have its downsides. Um, I think efficiency, inefficiency, high cost, waste are also part of that problem that has a little element of central planning or planning perspective that's not perfectly market driven. Um, but as China, as one economy matures, the state will need to play a different role, maybe less interventions and, you know, kind of, um, you know, direct participation, the more uh, kind of uh, slide into the the background. Um, but so I think the U.S. country like the U.S. need a bit more state um, and chi in China, we need a bit more market. There's an anal analysis by Kevin Rupp, you know, the former Australian pri prime minister who's, uh, who's written a lot about China and, and it goes something like this. This is a vulgar version of it, uh, but it says that 50 years ago, China was a state-driven economy. Uh, and in order to, to make economic progress, create growth and prosperity for the Chinese, they they let the free market dynamics play out and they, they had a certain interventionist aspiration, but, but they gave some power and authority to private enterprise, allowed foreign direct investment. And that to a certain extent was loyal to the original Leninist, Leninist Marxist a sense of history that you want capitalism to develop the technology and the prosperity you need. But then Kevin Rudd's point is that over the last couple of years, the state is kind of taking power back from the market and there's a power struggle between the Communist Party and the private sector in, in China. H how do you see that? I think this is an inaccurate description of what's going on. <laughs> um, I think where it's, there's inaccurate is the idea that there's a deliberate discrimination against the private sector. I don't agree with that. In fact, the state very much needs the private sector. And you know, if, if you look at our data that I have um, mentioned, uh, by 2015 already, 70% of the wealth belongs to the private. Uh, 30 years ago, it was the opposite, 70% uh, belonged to the, the state. And as I mentioned in the mayor economy, there are lots of things that the state can't do, like push for innovation. Right now, cutting edge technology is China's priority. It is the tech giants that are leading the way and the government needs them to do that and has no idea to displace them in these efforts. In providing employment, which is the absolute anchor for social stability, you know, 80% of the employment is, is, uh, is done through the private sector. And think about tax revenues. This is the arsenal of the the, the government, right? Where do these uh, the assets come from, uh, or or the the ability of the resources to do things? It's from good performance of the private sector. But what I would say is that there are problems with the system that makes for implicit discrimination against the private sector, not explicit. And let me give you an example. Um, as I mentioned, you know, the majority of the financial system is really the, the, the banks, the state banks. And uh, if you think about financial access for small, medium-sized companies, private companies, right, which is their lifeline for survival and for success, it is through these banks. And again, these banks' incentive is to not take that much risk and lend to private enterprises, um, again, when there's 
you know, it's not it's not a market allocation based on capital markets, but rather to lend to the state affiliated companies or very big co- private companies, right? They also lend to very very good uh, private companies as well. In fact, that's equal with state companies. It's just the the smaller, less well known because they don't want to take that risk, right? So, and then again, if you look at the cost of capital for private companies, there are layers and layers and layers of financial intermediaries that adds on to the cost of capital. So by the time you're a private entrepreneur, your cost of capital is really, really high. So that is actually discrimination, but not the kind that people say, oh, the state is competing with the private deliberately. Now, a second form of implicit discrimination is that there is an element of crowding out. When you have um, this political economy model where the state still plays an important role, again, at the local level, not not really at the central level, um, because the local governments like the mayors we talked about, then uh, the unintended consequence could be crowding out of certain things um, of the private. So I agree that there is implicit discrimination, but I totally don't agree that the intention is to have this state versus and to push out the private. So there's not the power struggle between them as as entities, as as he he described, not done the explain. It's it's described in such a stark way that I think does not befit the reality, which is it's like this yin yang you know map, right? Black and white, they're you know integrated. Um, again, there's competition, there's collaboration, uh, th- there's some crowding out, but there's also some enablement, right? Like the, all the examples that I gave. Yeah. Um, but to depict it as a dichotomy, I think exactly misses exactly this. This why why it's so difficult to read China, uh, which is it's it's kind of it's a fluid thing, um, and you can just pick snippets of it and come to a conclusion. Uh, that is radically different from, you know, that very complex picture, if you will. For many, I think uh, when it comes to climate policies, China is also a very complex picture because on the one hand, there's no doubt that China is out investing the U.S. and, and Europe in renewable energy. And we know how the, the EV sector is, is is really dynamic in in, in China. And we I heard the other day Adam Tu saying that China outspends the U.S. five to one when it comes to renewable uh, in energy. And, and China has committed to a net zero uh, carbon uh, economy in, in, in 2060. So on the one hand, we see China is really driving a green transition that is highly uh, ambitious. On the other hand, we also see new uh, coal plants being being approved. We see emissions are, are peaking. Uh, and I know they are in Europe as well, but we see emissions are are, are peaking this year. Again, we see that there's enormous uh, consumption of of energy in in China, and this, of course, is a dilemma we're all too familiar with in, in the West. It's the same dilemma basically between green transition as a growth strategy, and then on the other hand, an enormous need for for energy consumption. Of course, as we realize that it's no longer our world in the West, people are becoming very interested in what's how the climate agenda plays out in China. How do you see this dilemma between the green transition and approval yeah. of new coal capacities? Well, first of all, I should say the leadership is really very committed to 
um, uh, uh, the green transition and, and and the environment in general, and that that we can feel, you know, as as a Chinese citizen, um, uh, that that's not only a national goal, but that there will be a lot of uh, things done to to make sure things happen. Um, but it's again about it's a it's a it's a trade off, and and there are trade offs and a balance issue because the government still probably puts as a priority economic development. And again, if you just still look at China, where China is at today, you know, we talk about China all the time, but it's a $10,000 per capita income uh, a country, you know, very, very far from getting to Denmark or even, you know, uh, to, to larger uh, countries like, you know, U.S. levels. And so, again, you know, hundreds of millions of people uh, with unequal uh, distribution of income across China, highly, highly, highly unequal. Uh, and I'd say that that is still on balance the priority. But at the same time, you know, again, I'm not an expert on this issue, but I think there's also even within uh, climate change policies, maybe there is a focus on green investment or coming out with the right technologies to radically reduce the cost of uh, these emission costs or to save energy. That 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 China is very much intent on on promoting uh, at the same time. So just to answer your question without too much um, uh, of, of this expertise, it's that it's a balance between uh, development and wanting to be very much part of this process, um, but from a technological uh, point of view, innovation point of view. You also describe in the book how it was at once an enviable position to becoming the world's factory, to have a lot of production in China. But you say that now people are facing the consequences of that. You see a lot of not climate problems, but environmental problems. And that's an everyday life experience in China. How, how did this challenge the paradigm of economic growth that people have been living in their everyday lives with the consequences? Well, I think, you know, again, to summarize what what, what I, my observation about China's model, it is a high growth, high cost model. And not, I think most countries, most economies either won't want to opt for that or won't be able to, you know, even uh, uh, come out with that. Uh, well, let's just say, uh, so, so, you know, so forget that point. I, I just think that it's a high cost and high growth model in retro, retrospect. Environment was part of the story, um, I think, years ago. I think today there's an overdrive to protect the environment. Again, in a ways, uh, this is this is one part of the problem with the system, right? The, you have these very eager local officials wanting to deliver the objectives, um, but then there's an overdrive in one direction uh, that that you can say has led to underdevelopment of certain regions because they just don't want to touch this area, uh, not even having the right kind of smart approaches of how to develop a beautiful environmentally uh, you know, important region, but still give them the economic power. And we've seen examples, even in places where I'm familiar, uh, no development at all, just not touching anything. And so, so you you do have you do have that kind of problem with the system as well. But I think, you know, um, Uh, this high cost, high growth model extends way beyond just the environment. Uh, I think everybody would agree that there's been lots of wasted resources, you know, kind of even in the, the semiconductor space, the race to self-sufficiency uh, will lead to lots of wasted resources. And these are people saving. Um, 
But at the same time, you know, if you ask the Chinese people, would they still opt for choose this high cost, high growth model or a low cost, low growth model? They obviously go with the former. I mean, if you look around the, the, the real estate sector as well, right, lots of empty spaces, you know, um, uh, the, the buildings were built, rolled out, uh, you know, in 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 a, what's the right word? Um uh, like, you know, just rolled out uh, in, in such vast quantities at a time, right? Something that other countries can't probably do. So I think it's it's just part of part of that, the system. Uh, but you, what you got was speed and you got yes. was really fast development and associated problems. You're, I think you're in Beijing right now, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. And we've uh, read stories about uh, heavy floodings in, in Beijing and you've seen some of the same disasters this summer than we have practically all over the world. People have died in different parts of of China. I think here in Europe, there's a sense of a shock this summer. And of yeah. course, these, these are repeated shocks, but it seems yeah. different this time. How, how, how is the, the everyday experience in China of, of, of this summer and the way climate is evolving? Sorry, when you say the people feel it's different this time in Europe, you mean about climate or about China's? About climate, about climate okay. here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, we're just, yeah. I think one thing that we have Too many things, too many uh, odd coincidental accidents, right, to, to make uh, everywhere around the world. Yes. Well, first of all, I think it's not seeped into the everyday um, kind of mindset that these things are linked to climate change. Uh, what I would profess is that even though climate change is very much part of the government's agenda and inculcated into companies, that permeation hasn't really been yet thorough. So if you look at people's behavior, it's not at all as aware, okay, that that the same amount of awareness of environmental protection as people who live in the West, not at all. Uh, and so, um, so, again, this is a very much state-led level uh, effort rather than a bottom-up one if we're talking about massive scale. Um, so people treat this, you know, summer's flood as a disaster, not necessarily linked to the overall climate change. But again, this is something that the Chinese people don't tolerate, right? Disasters and people's lives being taken and children's lives being taken from accidents. And again, you see huge amount of reporting around these issues and the government would take responsibility if it is to be a tribute to the government. Um, so... Um, so I so so I, I don't think that has become a very you know a mass massively socially conscious uh, 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 topic yet. Although you hear the elites talking about it, you hear you hear the government talk about it. So I must ask you also about the state of Chinese economy at the moment because you yeah. describe in the book the new playbook, which is a rupture with something that we used to to associate with, with China, but at the same time, we see growth levels are, are falling significantly and maybe they just couldn't last, but we also see lack of foreign direct investment in, 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 in China. And we see something that is surprising to us, I think a lack of consumer confidence and expectations for the future, which could be damaging to the Chinese economy. People are saying Chinese numbers have been inflated. How do you assess the symptoms of a crisis in the Chinese economy at the moment? Well, first of all, it's important to keep in mind that China was one of the last to exit from the pandemic. 
Um, and, you know, we're still seeing the scarring effects of very severe lockdowns, uh, you know, and long period of economic uncertainty. Um, so people's confidence levels are very, are, are, are still low. Uh, we've seen consumer pick up um, somewhat, okay, you know, higher than GDP growth was consumption growth. And uh, you, you know, being in Beijing, I see traffic every day now, which is, uh, you know, night and day compared to a year ago, uh, where there's nothing. So there's a rebuilding of household balance sheet. There was a lot, a lot of lost income that's will, that will never be recovered, and people, you know, recovering their jobs, etc. But still, I do think that the Chinese economy is under a grave challenge. And not for the same reasons that people talk about in the West, like Japanification of the lost decade or demographic aging or peaking China peaking over for very simple reasons. Well, first of all, let me talk about the bad part before I come to the potential. Um, so there's a confidence issue. There's the fact that, you know, as I mentioned, the private enterprises, which are the driving force of the Chinese economy, uh, still don't enjoy the benefits of a freely flowing market-based economy. Uh, and they're being restricted. And the state is so heavy under burden of debt, especially local government. And that has much, very much to do with uh, reduced tax revenues, the real estate and lost income during the pandemic, a huge amount of expenditures uh, that the country is really under strain from debt. And FDI has fallen really in a shocking way. And I think this has much to do with geopolitical reasons or uh, or at the same time, an inability to read Chinese policy and where exactly the economy, the regulators' intentions are. I think it's a mix of these factors. So collecting collecting these things and global demand is falling and China's export-oriented economy. But that is still also very important because if we look at the recent export numbers, they have fallen substantially, but so has Japan and Korea. Uh, all parts of Asian countries have have seen reduced trade volumes in relatively equal manners as China. So I think I think these factors combined make for a very, very poor economic, uh, short-term economy uh, currently. Where I don't agree with the rest of the world depicting China as having peaked and Japanified or whatever, is first of all, the potential is there. And uh, whether China will realize, and this is part of the, the part of the book that I mentioned, is it's all about whether it can catch up with its own potential, right? And for a long period of time, this growth was catching up to its own potential. And that's you, then that, that's what you saw, this remarkable drive in growth. And if you look at China's long-term potential income, it's certainly not 10,000 US dollars, $10,000 or $20,000 or even 30,000. It should be much higher because of China's saving rate, China's education system, China's, you know, um, the, the state capacity and China's innovative capacity. China has all the elements that have been important in determining whether China, uh, whether economy can exit a middle income trap. China has all of that, especially that innovative drive and capacity, which I talk about a lot in my book. The problem is, can China continue to reform just like it has in the last 40 years? Can China make the right economic policies and stabilize? Of course, some part of it is not up to China. It's the whole geopolitical atmosphere so that that hundreds of millions of people can, you know, think about hundreds of millions of people reaching 
middle income by international standards and that amount of consumption growth that can be unleashed. To give you another number, the service sector only accounts for 47% of the jobs in China right now. In US or Japan, that's 80%. So again, huge room. If you look at human capital or productivity or um, just even in terms of sheer income level, it is still a vast, there's a vast room of convergence that I think China should be able to make. Now, the real challenge is, does the economy still matter as it once did for the leadership? Or has security, geopolitics, or politics itself become more important? That's question number one. Uh, number two, do the local officials still want to take these bold moves, right, to be entrepreneurs and to, to trial and to make experiments um, as they did once at once at one time? Currently, the environment, as we mentioned, has become more tightened and controlled, not just for the private, but for everybody, right, including the local governments. And there's a sense that there's a lack of willingness to want to stick your neck out to do something bold as it was before. That's number two. And number three, you know, all these really important things to keep on doing, you know, uh, reform the capital market, this simple thing. Companies used to need to get approval from the government regulators to be listed on the stock market. Now it's being pushed to registration-based system, like a mature, you know, financial market, right? Um, that that all of that can 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 progress. China can lower barriers to entry for foreign companies for the service sector, and that will again leash a lot of growth. So I can also sense a, my own frustration is I, I believe that there are things to be done, but I'm not saying that these things will be done. I just have one last question, which is yeah. that I think for a while. We thought that everyone in the world would become like us in the West. That was a matter of time. We were the final stage of history. And so if we just uh, traded with people, helped them progress, they would end up like us. And now there's kind of the other way around, that, that they're not becoming like us at all. And therefore, and therefore, we should be very careful trading with them. We must de-risk. We must diversify our supply chains. But what do we actually do about the things in other countries that we... That, that we are appalled by and alarmed by. And, you know, we've learned from Afghanistan, Iraq, that's not a way to go. We've learned that free trade does not necessarily produce the outcomes that we want. If people in the West are alarmed by some of the things that are happening in this great, great complex country that is China, the treatment of the Uyghurs, the lack of civil liberties, how would we be able to help these people in, in, in the country? What would be a criticism that wasn't counterproductive or would seem neo-colonial yeah. or arrogant? Well, first of all, let me say that China is much bigger than the Communist Party. And I think a lot of these discussions are somewhat problematic for both sides because we only focus on the differences between from government, government, the state, from the state, but without really trying to understand the Chinese people. I mean, have people really asked on the street, or sorry, to put another way, if people come and visit and talk to the Chinese people, I can bet you they'll have a totally different picture of what's going on than what they read in the newspapers. So what the Chinese people are doing, what the Chinese students are doing, what the Chinese companies are doing, it shouldn't be shrouded with this, you know, kind of veil 
that's so foreign and alien and so different. And, you know, it's a, a whole a totally different, you know, value system. And we don't understand. I, I don't, I don't think that's, that's really the right way because I think in some ways we're actually even being manipulated by leaders all around the world to um, have that, you know, kind of to be pitted against one another. Um, this might be an exaggeration, it might not, but you know, we, we, we gotta be aware that underneath those layers are really hardworking people trying to make a better life for their kids and to protect them. And this is the same thing around, around the country, around the world. Um, so uh, I think to keep the dialogue communications channel open to see the bright spots, but also the problems in a in a more cleared eyed view. Uh, look, you know, if we look at the Western democracy, it's not perfect at all, right? And if if you look, if you take a Chinese, if you take you know a, Med a Middle Eastern person looking at the the West, uh, the U.S., they'll be full of criticisms uh, as well um, and perceptions. You know, whether it's reality or perceptions. So, so first of all, it's 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 larger than than the Communist Party in China, and same thing uh, in the U.S. What is the right kind of engagement, right? I think first of all, we have to understand that ninety percent of the people in the world today are still living in the developing countries. I do not see any argument saying that we should keep these people in a developing a poor state and living in abject poverty just because we don't agree always on politics, on our values. I just simply don't agree with that. I think everybody, every person, if taken with a Western moral eye, should have the dignity to, to life uh, in any place in the world. And But that rests on engagement because there's no way a developing country can um uh, or a poor country can become a richer country without being part of the global economy. But what we're doing right now is to conflate so many things together and to harm these people, because in the end, with these geopolitical tensions or perceived threats and challenges, uh, they are the ones that will suffer the most um, uh, from the process. Um, and if you look at Chinese technology, uh, they are... Um, uh, Really, the really the most suitable, I'd say, for developing countries because the developing countries' problems is not the lack of access to the cutting edge technology, but technology they can actually afford and use. It's accessibility, and so we should encourage things where where there's really you're making a greater global good. I, I've visited many Chinese companies that are you know bring data services to the most remote countries in the world and helping them lay the digital infrastructure of payment system and allowing them for 5G so they don't have to be in the mines with physical danger. I mean these are the, the ways to engage with China or with India with with whomever. Um, but then please narrowly separate the other issues of contention the disagreements on the things you mentioned or national security, and you can push each other to change. I think international pressure is still very effective uh, to a certain degree. Um, so I don't know, I, this is very, very uh, an, a long winded way, but I do really feel, I, I hope I made my points relatively clear that you know the importance to separate these issues and importance to still engage with every country's, you know, sorry, it is important to engage with a country as large as China. Second, uh, second in the world um, in the right kind of ways. Well, thank you so much. You made that point very clear, but also it's a <laughs> complex, it's a complex picture. And I think for us in the West, it's definitely a challenge to make this situation something that brings out the best in us. 
like actually the competition with China did at a, and Japan did at a certain point. I don't see this bringing out a lot of good in the West at the moment, but I think we must get there where it brings out the best in, in each other. And I think that will be the way to a critical dialogue with I, each other as well. Yeah, just just let me just um, supplement that. You know, in my recent TED talk, I did make the example of where Chinese battery makers are, you know, they're, by the way, they're, they're Western investors want to invest in Chinese companies now to take the technology into their own markets. Okay, this is again the same kind of concept which led to so much controversy when China did it. But still, putting aside that, that uh, the fact that battery makers are building uh, factories in Germany and collaborating with different cities in Europe on uh, EVs and smart cities and buses, and where um, that's pushing the German government to invest more in these areas is the kind of what I call compet uh, competitive collaboration uh, that I think fosters, you know, pushes the technology frontier uh, forward. And if we're talking about the green transition, we need to keep on making that a success. We need to keep on uh, keep on doing that. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for your book, Kayu. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for the interview and uh, look forward to reading it. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Det her var min øh, samtale med K.U. Jin. Den bog, vi taler om, og som jeg virkelig kan anbefale, øh, den hedder The New China Playbook Beyond Socialism and Capitalism, og den kan man bestille hjem hos sin boghandler, så man både får en forståelse af Kina og støtter sin lokale boghandler. Samtalen her var produceret og redigeret af vores gode ven og hjælper Mass Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi også tale om Kina, men der skal vi et helt, helt andet sted hen. Vi skal tale med den fantastiske kinesiske forfatter Sinran, som er vokset op under kulturrevolutionen og vokset op i et børnefængsel, blev banket for, at hun skulle fortælle, at hendes forældre var forrædere, oplevede alt det brutale ved det maoistiske regime. Siden oplevede hun genåbningen under Deng Xiaoping og det nye moderne Kina, som hun tog del i, men hvis bagside hun bestemt også oplevede. Hun fik et radioprogram, hvor hun hver aften mellem 10 og 12 fortalte almindelige kineseres historier. Der var ingen, der havde troet, at det radioprogram skulle blive til noget særligt, fordi dem, der havde givet hende tilladelsen til at lave radioprogrammet, de var sikre på, at bønderne de var gået i seng efter kl. 10. Men det viste sig, at de blev oppe, og særligt blev kvinderne oppe. De blev op og lyttede til senderens radioprogram, til hinandens historier, og pludselig blev det en helt ekstraordinær institution for kinesiske kvinder, som blev så stærk, at den blev en trussel for nogen, og Sinran blev nødt til at flygte. Det er hende, som jeg taler med i næste udgave af Langsomme Samtaler. Jeg håber, I vil lytte med der. Tak for nu. Mit navn er Rune Løkkeberg.